Well, thank you so much, Lori. It's our time now where we'll turn in the Word. And as many of you know, if you've been following along, we are diving into the final book of the Bible, which we know not as Revelations or merely the Revelation, but as we've been learning, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And, and the revelation is a, uh, or apocalypse, is an opening, a now open of what is a vision of Jesus that God wants for us. So you can feel free to turn in your Bible in your pew to that. And it's easy to find. It's the last, the last Bible, the last book in the Bible. And uh, Revelation 1 is where we are. And we're taking a look at this introduction. What an intro to this book that John gives us. Now, a number of people say a number of things about the last days. And many will say that they can tell from this book when things are going to happen. And throughout our series, we'll be examining at different times when people have thought things will happen. And uh, often, it's not the case. Now, I know one, past, one pastor, Robert Breaker, is wondering, uh, he's had a, a number of thoughts as he looks at this book and wonders, and a number of times he's thought he knows what's going to happen, including possibly this coming week, because of an asteroid named Child happens to be in the constellation Virgo, and then there's Leo nearby. Now, I know that sounds a little bit out there. He sells it a lot better over a sermon, and I, I wouldn't mind if you looked at some of his material, but I tell you, over the years, he's, he's mapped out a number of things. Sometimes uh, it looks like maybe he's on, the other times maybe not so much. The one thing I do know is that over the years, his beard has gotten longer. I know that for sure. So maybe that adds wisdom. I'm not sure. I think for some with beards, yes, it's uh, wisdom. I don't know what happened now that mine's gone. Now, if something special is happening this week, if this week is the time when Jesus is coming back, am I for that? Amen. Lord Jesus, come. Is that exactly what Revelation is trying to tell us, that we can pinpoint the time? I'm not so sure. Uh, some have said a number of things about the end. Neil deGrasse Tyson says, in five billion years, the sun will expand and engulf our orbit as the charred ember that was once Earth vaporizes. Have a nice day. That's how he looks at it. So we've got a lot of time from his mind. Neil Gaiman, a popular author, says, I have heard the languages of apocalypse, and now I shall embrace the silence. Maybe he's had had enough. And Dolly Parton, I know some of you are fans, she says this, God knows when the end of time will come, not some fanatic. The world will end someday, but the end of the world and the end of time are two different things. Well, I thought that's interesting. Well, as much as I uh, appreciate some of these other insights, where would I like to turn for us to figure some of this out. 
Well, I think you know. Let's turn to Scripture and see what comes out of this for us. And I'd love for you to turn with me to Revelation 1, 4 to 8. And if you are able to please stand with me as I read this short passage. So don't worry, it's not too long. But stand as we read from Revelations 1, verses 4 to 8. Here we go. Hear the word of the Lord. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before the throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all peoples on earth will mourn Because of him, so shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together as we take a look at this passage. Jesus, we do ask for a revelation of you, about you, from you, that you would illumine our hearts and our minds to gain a greater picture of who you are and what's going on around us. And we pray that gift from you today. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, today we go a a bit further into this incredible book, the revelation, and answer the revelation of Jesus Christ, and answer a few questions. Now, how many of you remember school? What are the five questions that you'd like to ask, or a teacher asks you when you're examining something? Yes, they're the five, the five W's. All right, so we're going to take a look at those today as we look at this introduction that John gives us as to what this book, who, when, where, how? No, that's a Y. It's an H. What and why? Well, how we sort of looked at last week. But, um, and if you haven't, don't go back right now to uh, listen to it. But please, take a look at uh, last week's sermon as well to make sure that I don't want anyone left behind. All right. So, number one, let's take a look. Who? Who wrote this book? Wow, how did you know? Yeah, so right at the very start of this passage, it just says, John. That's how you do a greeting when you write a letter back then. It's different than us. We'd usually write who we're writing to at the start. But for them, they would write who it's from. John. Okay, point two. Good. Well, in verse four, he does give us a little 
He doesn't give us much because he just says John, but in verse 9, he gives us just a little more. Because which John are we talking about? Which John are we talking about? In verse 9, he says this, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. Oh my goodness, we could unpack that all day. The fact that he sees himself as suffering with them. Can you hear his pastoral heart as a pastor to the churches he writes to? I think it's absolutely amazing. But otherwise, he keeps it pretty simple. And so for one to assume that others would know who he is by this general introduction, it makes sense that this is the Apostle John, the beloved disciple of Jesus who wrote the Gospel of John, the letters from John, and had this vision. Now, some, some would say that all of those were written during his stay on Patmos. Well, speaking of the W's, it's John that's writing it. When is he writing it? Now, to be honest, we're not sure when. He doesn't, he doesn't think it's that important to say. And there have been books written on it, and you could read a few of them if you want. I'll give you the synopsis in a paragraph. And we aren't sure. Some would argue that it was during the reign of Nero, around the late 60s. That's just 60s, not 1960s. 68 AD. And others would say it's during the reign of Domitian. These are two great Caesars around, and that, that was around 96 AD. And why do we know it was probably one of those? It was during a time of intense persecution. And these are two emperors, two Caesars in the Roman Empire that were providing a lot of that persecution. Now, there are good arguments for either date, the earlier date, the late 60s or the, or the mid-90s. And if someone tells you that they know for sure, encourage them maybe to just take a look humbly because John doesn't tell us. If it really matters, I think he would have. But there are arguments for both. And I think there, there's definitely key ideas. But again, he doesn't tell us. He doesn't think it's that important to make sure it's clear. Though there's hints throughout the, the book, and we'll see those later as we go, as to who it might have been. Now where? I gave you a little, a little tip on that one. Uh, he writes us uh, from the island of Patmos. And uh, he says this uh, later in verse, in verse 9. But I thought, let's include it now with the W's so that we can get a sense. Anyone been to Patmos? This is just off the island, uh, I mean, an island off of ancient Turkey. So that's ancient Turkey there. There's Ephesus, you can see, and then there's Patmos. There's this little island stuck there. A remote island, well known for being a place of imprisonment for political dissidents, revolutionaries. When the emperor said, I, I don't want to deal with you, we'll put you out on the rock, much like Alcatraz. Who's been to Alcatraz? Not that I've been there. Wouldn't be easy to escape from Patmos, even harder. 
trying to swim from there. You just stick them there, and they're stuck. And they'd work in the rock quarries for the empire. Now, it makes you wonder. I don't know. Maybe it does. It makes me wonder. What would John do? Just a simple pastor. What would he do to be considered such a dissident, a political revolutionary, to be sent out as a political prisoner to Patmos? I just want to bring up two quick points. These Caesars, these emperors, basically turned themselves into what they wanted the people to see them as gods, as divine. Complaint with temples. And this is a temple in Ephesus that you can still see to Domitian, uh, Emperor Domitian. And in the temples, everyone was expected to come in when they were there to, to pass through, to burn some incense, to simply say two words, Caesar Curios. Now, Curios, we've been hearing a little bit, quite a bit, because of our, our gap year program that the CBWC runs. And Curios is a Greek word, and it, anyone know what it's for? Lord. So the idea was you'd burn this incense to the Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord. And for most people in that day, no big deal. Oh yeah, I was just over at, you know, that temple for that God, and over at that temple for that God, I'll walk through this one to Domitian, throw some incense. Oh yeah, and Caesar is Lord. Okay, let's keep moving on and get on with life. But once in a while, a Christian would come through and they'd say, okay, everybody line up, get through, get in here. And they'd say, no, thank you. Whoa. And they were called atheists because they didn't believe in a God that they could see. Isn't that interesting? And so if you were known not to do it, encouraged others not to, there was trouble. Peter and Paul were martyred during the reign of Nero. And here we have John, who wasn't killed. And we can ask, well, here's the second point. Why wasn't he killed? Why is he still alive? And maybe if it was a later date, Domitian realizes, oh, well, look what martyring Peter and Paul has done. It's exploded Christianity as it spreads. Let's not create another martyr. Let's just stick him out on the island. He can do nothing there. I don't know who decided to give him pen and paper. I don't think the Caesar knew about that. Because when you're dealing with God and revelations from him, well, you, can't, you can't deny that God can do what he wants to do. And then, of course, he says that, in that on that island he's writing, that he writes specifically to seven churches in Asia, as you saw in that modern, in the ancient Turkey there. They call it Asia. Now it's Turkey. So we're going to talk more about the seven churches next week as we prepare to go in, because John has a message for each of these seven churches. And we'll look at each of those. But I just want to point out that the significance of the seven in seven churches. Isn't this interesting? Were there only seven churches in Asia? No. There were definitely more. But the idea of writing to seven of them signifies something special. That it's writing to the complete and full church. And I think we could argue not only to the full church of their time, but the full church 
throughout history and to us as well. Not just to us, but to us as well. Now, how, how could I say this? And it just, I thought he's writing to seven churches. How could we extrapolate that it includes all the churches then and even now? A couple quick uh, ideas here. Shiva is a Hebrew word for seven, and Shaba is the Hebrew verb for to be full, both related specifically a wordplay that's capitalized on authors throughout Scripture, through many of the biblical authors throughout this connection to the number seven with the Shiva and the Shaba. In fact, Dolores Smith, Christian author, she writes this. She'd say, the number seven is especially prominent in the Bible, appearing over 700 times from the seven days of creation to the many sevens of Revelation, which we will look at. The number seven connotes such concepts as completion and perfection, exoneration and healing, and the fulfillment of promises and oaths. In fact, it's fascinating. If you look at the first seven words, the very first seven words of the Hebrew Bible, the, right in the middle of that is this Hebrew word et, E-T or, or A-Y-T, depending on how you transliterate it. It's right in the middle of those seven Hebrew words, the seven words. It's untranslatable, that middle word. Made basically acting as a grammatical pointer. Listen to this. It happens to be made up of alaf and tav, the first and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. First and last, the symbol right there of the completeness of creation built into the first seven words of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Seven is important, a very important number, and it won't be the last time we see the number seven in this book, this vision, this letter. Now, I do want to say there's numerology. That, uh, taking a look at numbers and the meaning of them it would be called numerology, and it's in the midst of the symbology of the book. But that doesn't mean that whenever somebody says, oh, these numbers add up to this from the Bible, that it means that's the truth. We must be humble and critical about what we hear and what we read and come back to say, what would it mean to the early church? Okay, so we've looked at a few W's. Let's take a look at what. So what is this? We looked at that a little bit last week. I just want to unpack it a bit more. That he is writing a letter, right, John, to the seven churches. So it's this letter, or is it apocalypse? Is it a revelation? Is it a letter, or is it a revelation? The answer, of course, is yes. Yes. It is both. And a prophecy, as John tells us, back in verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So it's also a prophecy rolled into one very unique book. And he starts this letter that's both a, an apocalypse, a letter, and a prophecy as well. He starts it in a very Pauline way. That's the Apostle Paul, the way that Paul would write a letter with some extra flourish of poetry and symbolism. 
as one would expect if you're looking at the apocalyptic genre, which we unpacked a little bit more last week. John ends up, he, he bombards us in this book, actually, with imagery from the vision that he received from Jesus, about Jesus, of Jesus. And he writes it down with this incredibly deep understanding of the Old Testament, rich with its imagery, as a letter to the early church, all to awaken our Christ-informed imagination, our hearts and minds, ability to see what we cannot see with our eyes. This is what he is writing. Listen to what Eugene Peterson says about this book. The revelation is a gift, a work of intense imagination that pulls its readers into a world of sky battles between angels and beasts, lurid punishments and glorious salvations, kaleidoscopic vision and cosmic song. It is a world in which children are instinctively at home and in which adults, by becoming as little children, recapture an elemental involvement in the basic conflicts and struggles that permeate moral existence and then go on to discover again the soaring adoration and primal affirmations for which God made us. Wow. Wow. I love it. The prophetic imagination. So much of what, of what, when we talk about what, much of what John writes down is poetic, not necessarily to be interpreted literally, and the early church understood this. Unfortunately, commentators are tempted to come up with all sorts of wild interpretations without necessarily considering what the early church thought. And it can lead us down all sorts of roads. The great author, Father Brown novels, if you like those. He was also a philosopher and a Christian apologist. J.G.K., let me get that right, G.K. Chesterton. He was a mentor to many like C.S. Lewis. He once said, and though St. John saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. So once again, when we look at this book, we need to come to it humbly and say, can we clearly imagine how this would work out? Let's be humble and not so certain when we see, especially when we see wild things occurring in this book. Now, even in this epistle or the letter style opening, which we often see in Paul, some of this creeps in. And I want to point out something real quick here. Let's read some of this again. When he writes, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ. Now, overall, in this book, we see this incredible, deep, theology, this presence, a profound Christology, that word means an understanding of Christ or of Jesus as the King, Messiah, the Christ, and what Jesus has done for us. There's this deep theology. 
And yet it's a Trinitarian understanding of God is also portrayed. Did you hear some of that? With he who was and is and is to come. That's our creator God. And from Jesus. But then it also says, and the seven spirits. Now, at least this is an allusion to the Holy Spirit. But some would say, well, when it says seven spirits, that must, that's confusing. So it must just mean, and this might even say this in your Bible, it might have a little thing that says the sevenfold spirit. Obviously, John is talking about the Holy Spirit here. Obviously. But it's not so obvious. Again, to take a humble stance and to say, well, that's what would make sense to us. But is John doing something different? If we look at 1 Timothy 5.21, Paul uses similar language when he says, in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels. Obviously, we know Paul has a very high pneumatology or an understanding of the Holy Spirit, and yet he neglects it in that sentence. And even Jesus speaks of the Son of Man coming in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. So some would say these seven spirits, are they the seven seven angels that come out? Is that what John is talking about? Well, again, we'd have to say we're not so certain. And maybe we don't need to be. John is not so concerned that the theology is crystal clear to the reader at times. But in this case especially, he is concerned that the image of the greatness of God is presented. And then what Jesus has invited us into. Wow. To be a kingdom. To be his kingdom on earth. And to be God's priests. That we get to participate to be a part of Jesus' kingly court and to be the spiritual connection point for others in our world. This is what John's reminding us of just in this introduction, the part that we get to play. This is just the greeting, folks. All right, one more question. Why? Well, why do we have this letter? Well, we have it because he wrote it down. Why did he write it down? Because he was given a vision, this image. Some have said, could you imagine what it's like? And maybe some of you can. Maybe some of you have imaginations where you can close your eyes and, and uh, uh, an image of like a whole movie could go throughout in your mind. Memories For others, their imagination is hard, and you can't even imagine imagining that. But John was given a gift, and we don't know if he was awake for it, if he was asleep during it, but he was given this gift of this whole story played out like a movie, like IMAX. You know, who knows? We don't know how he received his vision, but he received this vision and then wrote it down, wrote down what he saw 
You put it down and put it down with such incredible literary acuity, considering all the allusions to the Old Testament that he saw and wrote it down, quoting Old Testament. This incredible gift. Again, we could still say, well, why? Well, John was a pastor at heart, concerned for his churches, concerned for his people. He was concerned that they were becoming complacent, impacted by the empire around them, compromising, and concerned that they were in need of some encouragement and hope, a new vision that would give them the strength to endure what was to come. And as a dissident himself, political prisoner, he wants them to see why they need to continue to dissent from becoming like the empire around them, no matter how much pressure would come their way. Of course, we know that the letter's purpose, he says this was to uncover or reveal things which must shortly come to pass. And John will move from quoting scripture like Daniel and Zechariah, which we're going to look at briefly, applying it to them presently and in the future. And he'll use all this imagery to stir our imagination to see who is winning the ultimate battle. And I want to look briefly there at, at verse 7. When he brings up, he says, look, he is coming with the clouds. He's quoting Daniel 7 here. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. Quoting Zechariah, so shall it be, amen. Now I'm just going to unpack just really quickly here what he's looking at. The picture of Christ returning with the clouds has this Old Testament. Remember we said these were references back, and what they would understand, this Ancient Near Eastern background. In the ancient Near East, cloud riding was associated with storm gods, like the clouds of dust raised from chariots ridden into war, or even into a city after a great victory. The king is riding in, and the clouds, the dust clouds are, are forming. Ah, here comes, here's the coming king back from victory, and the crowd would go out to meet the victorious one, meet out in the city, out of the city, and then ride in with the king. The Old Testament poets and prophets on several occasions refer to God riding a cloud into battle to rescue his people. The point that John is making here is that Jesus will be vindicated and will ride to the rescue. He has, he will, and he will again and again until the ultimate day when he comes to right every wrong. Do you think they needed that encouragement? Do we? I think so. The encouragement that Jesus is riding to our rescue in the midst of our struggle. Yet, how Jesus wins 
is very different than what some people would picture as the conquering king riding to victory. This is, I think, why John pairs Daniel, the Daniel verse with the storm rider with the Zechariah verse of the pierced one who all will mourn because of. Listen to what Tremper Longman, author, an Old Testament theologian says. In this dual reference to Daniel 7 and Zechariah 12, we have an important theme that will reoccur in the book of Revelation. And we'll see this as we go through. The divine warrior, the one coming with the clouds, is none other than the suffering servant of God, the one who is pierced. In quoting Daniel and Zechariah, John is alluding to this great apocalyptic vision of judgment in the end, but it's in a different way than some might have thought. And we get to join Jesus in his war as members of his kingdom and his priests, but this is his war, and he is going to fight it very differently than any other warrior king would. Remember, this is a political dissident writing this letter about Jesus, wanting to empower Jesus' followers to live differently in this world. The truth that Jesus is riding the storm clouds of war on their behalf is real, even if they can't see it. But just how this war is fought by Jesus, well, we'll have to wait and see. But even if it'll look different than one might think or hope, John affirms who this is. And I want to end with this. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. How many times, let's do a little quiz here. How many times do you think Uh, the phrase, the Lord God, the Almighty, occurs in the book of Revelation. Anyone take a guess? Seven times, exactly. Yep. Jesus is the one who completely portrays in its fullness the Lord God Almighty. And do you hear, of course, what's said here? The Alpha and the Omega? the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Commentators look at this and go, it's pretty clear, actually, to us as we study this, that he is referring to a new creation in Jesus. And in saying the Alpha and Omega, this goes right back to the Aleph and Tav of Genesis 1, those two little letters stuck in the middle of those first seven words. There's no coincidence in a scholar's, most scholars' minds, of what Jesus is having John write about. So let me stress. The point of this vision, even when we figure some of these things out, is to point us back to Jesus. Jesus, the Lord God Almighty. I remember when one of Brendan's friends was uh, just at school. They were at school at VSS, and they were looking out the window, and it was a cloudy day, and the, and the sun started streaming through the clouds. 
and his friend, his name was Moon. We will never forget Moon. He was awesome. He just, he, he all of a sudden yelled out, look, Jesus is coming. I don't know if you've ever felt that some days when you wonder, you think, well, maybe this is it. It looks like it could be. Or it's God's beautiful paintbrush. It was so surprising for Brendan to hear his friend, who he had no idea had any relationship to the church or to Jesus at all, yell this out in front of all the other kids. And he wasn't sure if he was joking or not, or if he just sort of had that image of, oh, that's like a Jesus' coming vision. Well, John doesn't want us looking to the sky just waiting for Jesus to come on the clouds one day in the future. That's not what John wants for us. John wants us to know that Jesus is riding with the storm clouds for us now, with great victory in the midst of every struggle that we're going through. Yes, there will come a day when he comes fully. And amen, Lord, come, Lord Jesus. But John wants us to know that he is here now. Jesus is the Lord God Almighty, the one who is, who was, and is to come. This is our divine warrior, who is also a suffering servant, which John knows and experiences himself, that this is the lion and the lamb. John receives this vision and wants to pass it on to us. A vision of Jesus that inspires us to trust him today. Not just for the future, but for today, no matter what is going on around us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this incredible vision that John has. That he received from you and has for us. A vision of you, from you, about you. And so, Lord, we ask that you would reawaken in us a vision of your incredible holiness, your righteousness, your love and joy for us in the midst of suffering and struggle. Lord, show us how to live in your love and holiness as we go through this week. Teach us more about you and who you are. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Ah, amen. Amen. Well, if you want to keep on singing, you have an opportunity. Grab a coffee or tea and then be back here for 1130 to join our choir. We encourage you to be part of that. But we enjoy, encourage all of you to come and enjoy some coffee and uh, some time to connect together after a wonderful service. Thank you for your singing. I encourage you to open your hands at this time as a symbol of, of just being willing to receive. May it sink into your soul what Jesus has for you today as you receive this final blessing and benediction. As you go from the service, may you go in the knowledge that Jesus is your divine warrior, ready to fight any battle that comes your way showing you maybe a new way to battle it as a suffering servant. 
So may your hearts and minds be open to what Jesus has for you this week in a new and powerful way. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Hi there, this is Randy Hamm. I'm one of the pastors here at Vernon First Baptist Church, and we are going through our series, Revelation for All of Us. As we explore this final book of the Bible, what is it? Why was it written? Where? When? Why? Did I miss any? Well, we're going to take a look at the five W's as we look at what an introduction John gives us. Uh, uh, this week. So enter in and continue to open up your heart to and your imagination to what Jesus has for us in this book of Revelation. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm.